The reading today is from Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 16. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put them out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We fought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Though the spirit there, though the spirit they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem, when it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us there out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Tolerahomaeus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, he gave up and said, the Lord's will will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nasson, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Very well done. Um, I, sorry about the geography lesson. It's one of those readings that you absolutely don't want to get, but I think you did pretty, pretty well. So well done. Thank you. Um, it's, uh, it's very good to be with you. Um, I, I'm Mark Mennell. I'm married to Rachel. Is this coming through loud and clear? I'm give you a table for your glass. Oh, gosh, that's so very sophisticated. Take it over. That's very sophisticated. Okay. We have the technology. Um, I'm married to Rachel, we've got two children who are in their 20s, and I work for the Langham Partnership, which was founded uh, 21 years ago um, uh, to bring together the different ministries around the world that John Stott uh, founded. Now, many may not be aware of who he was. He died 11 years ago at the age of 90. He was based in one church in London pretty much all his life. He started going at the age of two and finished going at the age of 86 when he moved to a retirement home. Uh, That's All Souls Langham Place, and that's where our name comes from. And um, John had a a truly unique uh, reach and ministry around the world. And um, it was was sort of organic. He didn't sort of set out, you know, know, with a sort of map of the world and think, right, I'm going to sort of move in here and, you know, like those those things you see in sort of war movies where they've got sort of sticks with tanks and aircraft, they move around the board. It was nothing like that. It was just very organic. It grew out of friendships 
and relationships with people through his writing, through his preaching and teaching. And uh, now uh, I have the privilege of working mainly in, in Europe uh, in uh, a part of the partnership that does preaching and teaching training, so helping grassroots leaders uh, mainly I, in my personal uh, work in Eastern Europe, but traveling all over. Um, and so it's great to be here with you for your Mission Sunday. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, and uh, we had a look at a passage in Acts uh, 16 earlier this morning, and I'd love it if you had Acts 21 open in front of you. In fact, actually, if you've got the Bibles, um, I'm going to sort of look at one or two little bits before our passage, just to sort of set it in context, because it's a slightly odd passage, perhaps, uh, but there are some important things in it. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get cracking. And this is a prayer that John regularly prayed before he preached. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule. May your spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our supreme concern. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you gain the whole world or take up your cross? That's the simple choice at the crossroads of every life. A world gained, but without Christ. Or... The cross on the path to eternity with Christ. Now, if you're anything like me, and I suspect you are a little bit at least, we don't like stark choices. We don't like the black and white. And for some time, perhaps even for a number of years, we think we can just sort of keep putting it off or keep um, somehow having a foot in both camps, gaining the world, perhaps, or a little corner of it, and, you know, having Christ as sort of somehow part of our lives. We, we think we can play both sides. But the time comes, inevitably, when we must wake up, when we must realize there's no center ground, there's no via media, as it's sometimes called, no classic British compromise, we realize that Jesus was right all along. You cannot have Christ and the whole world. That was one of the things, actually, that was so un-British about John Stott, Uncle John, as many of us called him. And John understood this remarkably very early in his life, going to camps as as a teenager. He understood that even though, because of his natural gifts and abilities and talents, um, as well as his sort of uh, place in in life and where his family was situated in, in the sort of the hierarchy of things, he did have the world at his feet. Um, I think his father wanted him to be a diplomat, and he had languages. He had all of that ahead of him. He could have been remarkably successful. He had, he had the gifts. We might well have known him for various other things. But he understood very, very early, you cannot have Christ and the whole world. And now that made him controversial, But he was radical in his uncompromising commitment to what having Christ meant. That actually, this is a gospel of grace, of good news, of of undeserved treasure. 
faith in Christ alone was the key to that. And so when he died, amidst all the accolades, and there were tributes from literally all over the world, and um, there was a memorial service in St. Paul's Cathedral about 10 months, I think, or so after his death. Uh, both archbishops spoke. There were people, um, archbishops from other countries as well as leaders. I mean, it was extraordinary. It's uh, Because he'd become such a sort of older statesman, I think it's very easy to forget how controversial he could be, and indeed the scorn. I want to read from um, one notorious write-up that an American bishop called John Spong uh, wrote when John retired back in 2007. Just just get a little taste of this for the, the barbs and the bile. John Stott's Christianity and the fundamentalist evangelical tradition he espouses will finally do nothing except justify the human divisions between the saved and the unsaved. That religious stance will ultimately victimize every person who does not reside inside the definition of the Bible as revealed truth, as Stott interprets it. So John Stott has decided to retire. What he needs to recognize is that of all his major ideas have also long retired before him. Perhaps they will now be happy together. (laughs) I mean, the claws are out. That human division between the saved and unsaved. Human division? What Spong doesn't get is a, is a fact that is um, a thread all the way through the Bible. That yes, there is a division that we cannot avoid. And yes, to some extent it is one of our making because people decide against God. But it's not John Stott's idea, it's not evangelicalism, it's not even uh, any form of sort of Christianity and church polity or anything like that. It's the Lord Jesus. And the whole point is, you see, that Jesus doesn't want people to be on the wrong side of the line. He knows that there's a line, but he does everything he can conceivably do to grab people out of danger onto the other side of the line. He loves the unsaved enough to die on the cross for them. But the world doesn't like that, because the world doesn't like to think that it needs saving. No wonder it gets hot under the collar when those who, uh, with those who suggest others. Like when it got angry with Uncle John, but he wasn't deterred. He took up the cross and followed Christ, and he preached Christ, and Christ crucified, and gave the choice, the world or the way of the cross. Uh, you may not remember um, or even have heard of Howard Hughes, but he was the kind of Bill Gates or Elon Musk of his day. He was the richest man in America. And he died in 1976 uh, worth 2.5 billion US dollars valued at that time. Heaven knows how much it would be now. And uh, he owned a private fleet of jets, hotels, casinos. But when he died... Actually, it was a distant cousin who had to come and identify the body and had to ask, is this Mr. Hughes? Didn't even know what he looked like. 
He spent the last 15 years of his life as a drug addict. His six foot four frame had shrunk to six foot one, and he weighed only six and a half stone. This is how Time magazine reported his death. Howard Hughes' death was commemorated in Las Vegas by a minute of silence. Casinos fell silent. Housewives stood uncomfortably clutching their paper cups full of coins at the slot machines. The blackjack games paused, and so on and so on. Then a pit boss looked at his watch, leaned forward and whispered, Okay, roll the dice. He's had his minute. Now, of course, we can't know what Hugh's heart was like But it does seem that he gained the whole world and forfeited everything. So I suppose it boils down to your ambition. Ambitions by themselves are not wrong. It's simply a question of what drives them, your own glory or God's. And the Apostle Paul was ambitious. There's no doubt. Uh, And also, he could be a pretty tricky customer. I guess being on his team wasn't straightforward. There were times when actually there were conflicts and personality clashes, no doubt. And, you know, you had, to, you had to have a pretty thick skin, pretty hardy to be on his team. I mean, this is a guy, um, you know, in the chapters before us tonight, who's already endured sort of shipwrecks, imprisonments, beatings, being left for dead after being stoned. I mean, stoning was a bit more frequent than it is now. And people knew what someone dead looked like. So he was left for dead. And he would regularly preach himself into harm's way. And he would go to other places where he knew there would be harm. But it was never for self-aggrandizement. It was to preach Christ and him crucified. He had taken up his cross. And he was following his Lord. His ambition was to see Christ's name glorified. Whatever the cost... This is him writing just a year or two, or maybe even less, after the journey we're reading about. Perhaps, uh, yeah, perhaps only a few months later. This is to the Philippians. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, you may think this is all a bit of a detour, but it will make sense, I promise. And mostly that, most likely that letter was written in Rome, the last city that Paul would set his sights on in his life. Rome, he'd been wanting to get there for ages. His ambition was to get to Rome, the center of the empire, the key to reaching the known world. Get the news of Jesus to Rome, and it's like getting to the hub of a wheel. You go the spokes out 360 degrees But Paul had no illusions about the dangers and costs of that ambition. He'd known from the start, and actually if you read about his conversion in Acts 9, it's made very, very clear. He'd known from the start what following Christ meant. Yes, sharing in his glory, but before that, sharing in his sufferings. The cross or the world Now, as it was read to us so well just now, it feels a bit like a kind of travel diary, doesn't it? Um, And and it's sort of, 
It is like the, um, you know, sort of zooming through all these towns. You know, if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium, that kind of thing. Uh, and basically, he's just going through. And, and Luke, actually, the writer of Acts, um, he left the, the, the team uh, this morning in Philippi. He stayed there while Paul and the gang moved on. Well, now he seems to rejoin them. So there's lots of use of we did this. So Luke is back in the gang. And um, they're returning from what we now call Paul's third missionary journey. And it's taken him further than he'd ever gone before. He's been into Europe for the first time. He's been preaching in places like Philippi, Athens, and Corinth. And it's been an amazing ride, and God was leading them all the way. Absolutely remarkable. And then chapter 16, just before ours, in Asia Minor, Paul had received a vision from Macedonia, come there, and so he did. But he was then, even then, thinking about getting to Rome. And reaching Rome was his ambition for years. Interestingly, if you read the end of Romans, the letters he writes ahead of him to people in Rome, he says, actually, he doesn't want to stop there. He wants to get to Spain. And who knows, maybe to Britain. But uh, that's to jump the gun somewhat. Just for the time being, let's just see Paul's focus here on Jerusalem. And this is significant. This is why I chose this passage. So just flick back a page, chapter 20 and verse 16. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the provinces of Asia. He'd spent some time there before. For he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. So he wants to get to Jerusalem. Um, He had many friends in Ephesus, um, but he's determined to press on to get to Jerusalem. And it seems to be that that is God's ambition for him. He's presumably laid it on his heart. And um, he reminds the Ephesians um, in chapter 20 of what um, he'd done amongst them. So um, he he tells them on on the dockside, verse 22, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. So what uh, what we find in these verses, in this account of the progress Paul makes from Asia, which is is, not what we understand Asia to be, it's it's a part of what we understand Turkey to be, that was the Roman province of Asia, Uh, we see his progress from Asia to Jerusalem. And Paul is a driven man, even though it means a lot of painful goodbyes. So chapter 21, verse 1, you see they tear themselves away from the Ephesians. Everybody's bawling their eyes out. Um, It's it's very painful because they do not know where they might encounter each other again, from Miletus to Patara, via Kos and Rhodes, those famous holiday islands, but I don't think that's what Paul was doing. Then um, from Patara, they head towards Phoenicia, bypassing Cyprus on their way to Tyre. That's uh, now in modern Lebanon. Having spent a week in Tyre, no doubt tearful and prayerful again, they say their goodbyes and they head south um, by sea rather than overland because that's quicker, They hug the coast. They eventually reach Caesarea, um, which is uh, a port that's different from Caesarea Philippi. This is a very important geography lesson. You will be tested on the way out. Um, uh, And uh, this is the the port built for Jerusalem by Herod the Great. But all the time, it's clear, 21 verse 15, 
They start the two-day trek overland. Well, after this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nasson, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. So far, so good. But you'll notice I've overlooked the chapter's key dilemma. Because it appears at first sight that either God is giving conflicting messages or Paul has got God's plans wrong. All this weird stuff about Agabus and prophecies and weird stuff like that. What on earth is going on there? Well, if the first point was pursuing godly ambitions, the second is facing divine predictions. Now, this is not an everyday occurrence. But it's certainly something we need to sort of try and get our head around. Because you see, there's this prediction, and that leads to friends twice in our passage taking Paul, if you like, by the hand and saying, please don't go. Don't do it. But Luke uses God language to describe this. The first time is entire. Look at verse 4, where the team stop off with friends for a whole week. Through the Spirit, they urge Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul's undeterred. But it happens a second time, this time in Caesarea with Agabus. Let me just read again from verse 11. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it. And uh, that's quite an odd thing to do, but yeah. Uh, he says, The Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we, including Luke, we and the people pleaded with Paul, don't go. Well, you would, wouldn't you? They loved him. They owed him so much. He had done so much for them. He was such an encouragement Uh, Agabus there is using the classic sort of God-given tactics we see in, in the Old Testament prophets. He would sort of act out his message, a sort of visual aid. And the impact would have been unforgettable. Just imagine it if you were in the room. Back in chapter 20, Paul had said that he was going to Jerusalem and he didn't know what would happen there. But I think he knew and everybody else knew. But now there's no room for guessing because God has revealed that he's going to be bound and imprisoned. God was speaking directly and clearly, just as he had led Paul throughout these momentous journeys we've seen in Acts. Now Paul knew exactly what would happen to him. Before he couldn't be sure, but now they all agree God has said this is what's going to happen. If that is, God really was speaking. But Paul refuses to heed the warning. He's going anyway. That's not to say he's doing it lightly or easily. I think, you know, look at verse 13. I think you can hear the tremble in his voice, can't you? Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So, is Paul being disobedient? 
What on earth is going on here? Well, the first thing is that the way Luke tells it, I think he expects us to see this genuinely as God speaking. It's not some false prophet. No, this is genuinely from God. And Paul is not being disobedient. So, thankfully, we have Uncle John himself to give us a commentary on this passage. He gets it crystal clear. This is from his Bible Speaks Today on Acts. And he, he, this is vintage stock. Here we go. The better solution is to draw a distinction between a prediction from a prohibition. Certainly, Agabus only predicted that Paul would be bound and handed over to the Gentiles. The pleadings with Paul which followed are not attributed to the Spirit and may have been the fallible and indeed mistaken human deduction from the Spirit's prophecy. For, if you think about it, if Paul had heeded his friend's pleas, then Agabus's prophecy would not have been fulfilled. It's a prediction. It is not a prohibition. It's not saying don't do this. It's just saying this is what's going to happen. A prediction, not a prohibition. And what this shows, and I think this is the crucial thing, and it's why Luke includes this, I suspect, is it shows Paul's clear conviction. His godly ambition to serve the extension of the kingdom, whatever the price tag, it comes with a huge cost. But that price tag is a pale, minuscule reflection of the price the Lord himself paid. And I think this is why Paul's friends say what they do in verse 14, echoing Gethsemane. The Lord's will be done. That's not resignation at being unable to hold down a stubborn apostle, although he was pretty stubborn. They're not just sort of shrugging their shoulders and saying, oh, well, we we tried to stop him. But no, the Lord's will be done. There's a recognition. They see that what Paul is doing is taking up his cross That God's will, of course, would always be done. And that everything would work out for the good. But just as Jesus prayed, so Paul is prepared. Not my will, but yours, O Lord. And that's the point. For one of Luke's threads throughout the book of Acts is to illustrate what taking up the cross looks like. Through the narrative. Instead of just giving a set of instructions, this is what you do to take up your cross, he tells the story of how people did it. And actually, that is in many ways much more effective. And there is a parallel. There are all kinds of parallels. I don't know whether you've studied this, but it's, it's fascinating. You take Luke's gospel on one side and Acts on the other. There are all kinds of parallels. And just as Jesus is, of course, the focus of the gospel... Certainly from chapter 9 of Acts onwards all the way to the end, Paul is now the focus, and you see that what Jesus did, Paul does. From Luke chapter 9, very early in the gospel, out of 24 chapters, in Luke 9, Jesus says, um, it says, Jesus set out resolutely for Jerusalem, knowing full well what that meant. Because before that point, people had come down from Jerusalem to question him, to test him, to catch him out. He knew that was a sort of hotbed of opposition, even though that was where the temple was. 
He set out resolutely, and so does his apostle. But that's not slavish copying. We're not told this because we all need to do identical things. No, we don't take up our cross like Jesus did in every sense. I don't take up my cross in order to save other people. Jesus has done all that. But I do need to have the same mindset, which is exactly what Paul writes to the Philippians. Have the same mind as Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. No, he was prepared to go to the cross. Just flick back to chapter 20 again, would you? And, and just see Paul's fuller explanation of why he's not, not deterred by these predictions from Agabus or whatever, anyone else, even if they include suffering. So chapter 20, verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city... The Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the wonders, the beauties, the glories, the joys of the gospel of God's grace. Does that ring bells? That's just like what he writes in Philippians and the second letter to Timothy and so on. Paul is taking up his cross, which is why it's worth quoting the part in Philippians where Paul urges Christians to imitate him as he imitates Christ. This is Philippians 3. Join with others in following my example, brothers and sisters, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. The world, the cross. It's not a literal copy, although in Paul's case he was actually going to Jerusalem and knew that actually on the cards were the very same kinds of things, although in the end he would die in Rome. It's about the attitude. As you've seen in me, says Paul, so you do. That was one of the things that was so clear in John Stott. Um, Over the last 12 to 14 months, so it was the centenary of John's birth in 2021. So he died when he was 90, and um, last year... uh, in uh, April was the centenary of his birth and so for the 12 months or it stretched out into a bit more more like 14 months um, we did a podcast interviewing different people around the world um, who knew him or were influenced by him it's been fascinating um, including one with your very own Christopher Catherwood um, and some of you I think know John Wyatt who's involved at Faraday he was another one but people from all over the world Um, on six continents out of seven. I didn't get anyone from Antarctica at this time, maybe another. But um, from Sri Lanka to Australia, Tennessee in the US, to Jakarta in Indonesia, Medellin in Colombia, to Skopje in North Macedonia. And it was astonishing. Yeah, there were differences. People had different experiences of John. 
Um, but the testimony in the end was invariably the same. And it would be something like this. He showed us how to follow the pattern of Jesus and Paul, the way of the cross. They would testify to his humility and willingness to hear and listen to people from other cultures. He was brought up in the sort of dying days of the empire when that could have bred a real sort of imperialistic, condescending, um, sort of controlling mindset, and it couldn't have been more different. That is what crosses cultures and boundaries. That is what compels people, because it's the way of love. And they say, this is different. And this is what we're all called to. It may not be sort of spectacular or up in flashing lights. It may not be anywhere further than, you know, Cambridge. But it's what we're called to. We are all in mission. We are all involved in the kingdom. And I guess Cambridge is one of those cities and the sort of um, surroundings of it is one of those cities that has bred people to gain the world. And, and, you know, whether it's Nobel Prizes for science or or whatever it is, or, you know, extraordinary um, academic achievements that's led to, you name it, all kinds of different ways of being known. Uh, This is a very unusual part of the world. Yes, it is the kind of place, like sort of moth to a flame, it attracts people with ambitions to gain the world. He attracted John Stott. He was at Trinity. Read French and German. Did very well. Could have been a diplomat. His father wanted him to be. Now, it's not to say that you can't go and work in the foreign office or whatever if you're a believer and you have to go and be ordained or anything like that. Don't misread. But the point is, whatever we do, in whatever sphere of life, we have the choice. What is our ambition? The world or the cross? Perhaps in just a moment of quiet... Each of us will have had different people in our own lives who, who really modelled that. You know, there might have been sort of quirks and flaws in all kinds of other ways, but this, this aspect was there in their lives. Just, just for a moment, just bring that person or people to mind and just reflect on their influence on you. And thank God for that and, and say, well, you know, I want to be like that when I grow up. <laughs> Let's just do that in quietly, quietness for a moment. Heavenly Father, we praise you for these saints, these sons and daughters who have been important to us, that you have caused to to cross our paths and powerfully shape and influence 
our own lives. Thank you for them. As they took up their cross, may we, as they had the mindset of Christ that was not desiring to exploit circumstances or opportunities for their own glory, their own status or prestige or whatever it might be, but they were willing to cast it all before you in order to proclaim you. Let us do as they did. May we daily seek to follow Christ by taking up our cross and following. For your glory's sake. Amen.